This is democracyonthemove.org, a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, January 9, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Kenny Chu, journalist and author of the book An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. This is a well-researched book that chronicles the rise of Asian Americans to nationwide prominence in attaining technical and intellectual expertise, yet at the same time become the victims of numerous policies ostensibly written in the spirit of diversity, but results in the reality of excluding them from upper ranks from the upper ranks of the elite. Kenny is president of the nonprofit organization known as Color Us United. He is a commentary writer for The Federalist, The Washington Examiner, The Daily Signal, Quillette, and City Journal. He has been featured in numerous interviews on NPR as well as Fox News. So, Kenny, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I appreciate being on. Good. So, uh, first things first, um, I, I want to talk focus mostly on your book, The Inconvenient Min- or An Inconvenient Minority. So, can you give us a brief preview of your book and uh, what motivated you to write it? Meritocracy is the fundamental idea that has made not just America, but basically all nations um, excellent. Uh, it was, of course, the principle that sparked China to world domination um, back in the Middle Ages. It was because of their civil service exams that people were able to, from any class, any background, able to progress simply basis, based on their own innate intelligence and their study uh, and, and work ethic. And that principle is under danger right now. It's under danger because there's a new movement, you can call it identity politics, that threatens to treat people on the basis of background rather than their merit. They assert that America is a systemically racist society. In order to solve for systemic racism, you have to um, use things like race and gender and sexuality as factors in admissions, hiring, and promotion. And the people that are disproportionately at the receiving end of this who are most negatively affected happen to be Asian Americans, um, who by principles of hard work and study are able to achieve great things in this country and have become excellent. In fact, the average Asian American studies twice as many hours as the average American. But because of policies that exclude them solely on the basis of the race, um, they're now excluded from the upper ranks of the elite like Harvard, Princeton, Yale, based on new evidence and new lawsuits that actually really old evidence and old lawsuits um, that, that, that show that this ideology is spreading. So as this ideology, we can call it identity politics, continues to spread in our nation, it's going to have major negative consequences for Asian American success and the future of excellence in our country. Okay. And, and what was your personal motivation? I mean, you were, you're in the middle of this, correct? According to your book, you've been. Go ahead. I've been in the middle of this uh, lawsuit, this this very um, timely lawsuit um, from Students for Fair Admissions against Harvard University, which started in 2014. I joined in in 2018 as a journalist, chronicling all of these events, including helping it to get to national attention. Um, And uh, so I've been on this. um, I've been on this issue for you know really the past four years. Okay. And in your in your book, and also I've looked at numerous tweets, it, it, it seems to me that you've, uh, you talk about identity politics, and um, you seem to have a special sort of 
uh, uh, ire reserved for progressives. And, and and correct me if I'm wrong about that, but uh, you, you accuse progressives of abandoning true meritocracy in favor of of uh, well this identity politics mechanism, which I believe personally is is really just a preservation of current power structures at play. So here's the thing, and I don't want to equivocate on this, but there's you know there's progressives, there's conservatives, liberals, communists. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, people uh, in power, their main purpose is to remain in power. So um, is it really just, is your ire directed only at progressives or is it at society in general? Well, that's not necessarily true. I don't think the main purpose of everybody in power is to remain in power. Mm -hmm. I, I think under a true meritocracy, right, people will be elevated under the basis of their merit and their merit alone. Um, so if you are, you know, an, uh, an athlete, for example, in the NFL, we know that the people in the NFL are elevated by merit. And um, regardless of their internal motivations, in fact, many people in politics are even motivated to run for office, not because they, they have, they want power or power hungry, but because people draft them into running for office because they know that they're the most qualified candidate. So um, I, so that goes back to saying um, the issue that I have with progressives in particular uh, is one, the fact that Harvard proclaims itself to be a institution that is bounded by principles of diversity, equity and inclusion, mm -hmm. which are progressive mm -hmm. ideals. Um, they're progressive in the true sense of the term, which is progressivism is concerned about the social welfare of the least of these. And so the problem is Harvard's policies are not progressive at all in that true sense. They're actually regressive. They're, they're, they're exclusionary. They're discriminatory. They discriminate against Asians and to a lesser extent whites to make room for lesser qualified blacks and Hispanics. So that is the essence of what I think is actually regressive. So the reason why I'm so critical of progressives in particular with respect to this Harvard case is because it is progressives at the helm preaching this diversity and inclusion ideology Yet they don't they don't seem to be acting upon those principles. Could you go into more detail about what's really taking place at Harvard here, just uh, for the our listening audience here who have not looked at your book? You explained it very well in the book, by the way. But I, uh, could you give a little bit more detail about what's really happening at Harvard? So, the ideology at Harvard has always been, um, not has always been. I don't want to say that. Mm -hmm. um, but in the past 30 years, Harvard has been engaging in a, uh, uh, an admissions process, a very highly selective admissions process that discriminates against Asian Americans. The average Asian American has to score 440 points higher than a black person to have the same chance of admission to Harvard and 150 points higher than a white person. Um, the average Asian American gets, so Harvard grades people on three things, academics, extracurriculars, and personality. And an Asian Americans score highest on academics. They score highest on their extracurricular score. And to make up for it, Harvard grades Asian Americans lowest on the personality score. Um, and this does not correspond with any of the objective data. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, Asian Americans score highest on alumni interviews and they score second highest on teacher recommendations. So the, the point of the personality score is to artificially depress Asian American admissions from Harvard 
And uh, they're, they're doing this, of course, in the name of wanting a diverse student body, because if they didn't, um, Asian Americans would make up about 43% of Harvard University. Instead, they make up about 22%. Right. And, and <clears throat> this personality score, I mean, reading your book, it, it gets pretty obnoxious because they really get into the weeds on, on evaluating a person's personality, going so far as to determine what, what, how, what neighborhood they came from, what their zip code is, and things like that, 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 um, that target uh, uh, or provide some sort of cover, I guess, rationalization cover for excluding people based on their personality score. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's obnoxious and it should be uh, illegal because um, Harvard is gifted this, for some reason, this legal ability to basically data mine um, applicants. So it doesn't matter. They, Harvard already knows who you are. You know, before mm-hmm. you, you know, before you even hit send on the application, they have a variety of consulting services that can tell you exactly what neighborhood you live in, what school you went to, et cetera. They have social media data on you, um, and uh, a lot of, and they judge you on it uh, on a lot of irrelevant things or things that you didn't choose to do or that you know, things that are not based on your merit. Um, you know, even if you're a bank. Nowadays, you're not as a bank, you're not obviously you're not allowed to use race in your determination about whether to give somebody a loan. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to use the zip code that they live in to, you know, determine whether they should get in a loan. Um, You're not allowed to use most aspects of their background. But but Harvard and Princeton and Yale are allowed to use all of these aspects to judge you, to judge your fitness, including your race. And that is the truly obnoxious part about what is going on here is that we're giving Harvard special permission because Harvard claims to be this platonic guardian of, of, of fairness and objectivity and admissions. And they're not. They're inherently discriminatory. Yeah. And I think when you get into things like looking at a person's neighborhood they came from, um, you know, the zip code, but also looking at their social their media profession. Yeah, yeah, and your, your parents' profession and so on. I mean, you can you can find anything you want, right? You can find dirt if you're looking for it. I mean, you, you just have to look hard right. enough for it. So, yeah, I can see that uh, that being the case. Um, I'm going to challenge you a little bit, though. I'm going to turn the tables a bit because uh, I one of the things I want to find out is, you know, what is a meritocracy? You, you, you extol the virtues of meritocracy. And by the way, you had a very beautiful passage in your book regarding uh, the history of China and how they were a meritocracy at one point, but that got destroyed and it brought down the whole country in many ways. And um, so that's a, a really good example for people to look at. Anyways, um, the <clears throat> definition of meritocracy that you provide a definition from Thomas Mulligan, who is a Georgetown professor and theorist of meritocracy. And he said, quote, first we establish equal opportunity and then we judge people strictly on their merits when this is done, when we live in a meritocracy, people will have their just desserts. Now, so I'm going to pick on the first part of this uh, of this phrase here. First, we establish equal opportunity. And um, it's the concept of equal opportunity. How can you have a true meritocracy if there is not equal opportunity? So equal, well, you can't. I mm-hmm. agree with his definition. I don't think you can have a true meritocracy without equal opportunity. Okay. Did I ever say that? But anyway, what I was um, trying to say with this definition Mm -hmm. is that equal opportunity doesn't mean equal outcomes. 
Right. Uh, that, that should be pretty obvious. Um, we give people and um, some people are just genetically predisposed to have higher intelligence than other people. Just like some people are just genetically predisposed to be taller, fatter, skinnier, yeah, right. more artistic, creative, better personality, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And it's silly for us to assume that every person is born completely equal. Um, and I don't mean like, look, I'm a Christian. We're all equal under God, right. but completely equal. No, we're not. Um, and so even in a, even in a place with equal opportunity, um, um, then uh, where people have the same rights and uh, people are provided even the same funding um, to, to get a public education, some people are just going to come out at the top. And those people should be rewarded under meritocracy because what they're going to do is going to be the resources that we dedicate to them are going to end up being more beneficial to society than if we dedicate those resources to someone who is unqualified to utilize them. Right, right. Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that, yeah, with, with the definition of, of equal opportunity and it's and the fact that meritocracy really depends on equal opportunity. But um, I guess it's my observation in our country and, and in countries across the world, not just the U.S., but every place, and as you said yourself, nobody's really, uh, there is no real uh, complete equal opportunity out there. So uh, how do you square that circle then? How do you say, how do you provide some opportunity commensurate with someone's, uh, someone's merit, even though they may not have come from a background that has equal opportunity in it? I mean, I mean, yeah, this so let's is, let's talk about, yeah, okay. go ahead. No, I was going to say this, this actually sets the stage for, you know, things like um, identity politics, which I think has gone out of control. I agree with that. But I'm trying to figure out how to square that circle, though. Could you lead me through yeah, that? Sure. Let's talk about equal opportunity. Let's talk because I think liberals would probably have more to complain about equal opportunity in America than conservatives, which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, you have a right to that opinion. But here's where I here's where I draw the line. Um, do does everybody have the same rights, and uh, does everybody have the same roughly the same public government funding for their basic needs should they need them and i would say the answer to both questions is yes um one i, I do think everybody has the same rights does that mean there's no discrimination no it doesn't mean there's no discrimination i wrote a book about discrimination um but i think relatively speaking we are guaranteed those rights under the constitution we are guaranteed the rights of the Civil Rights Act in 1965, which prohibits discrimination. You can file lawsuits against people who are accused of discriminating against you. Um, I think we have, we, we, we all have the same civil rights, white, black, Asian, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, number two, do, do we all get relatively similar uh, resources from the government, not privately, not privately, from the government? Uh, to act on that, yes. To cover our basic needs, yes. Um, we, we created a welfare system for that pur purposeful reason um, so that you know, we allow people to take care of their basic needs. And we also give people government funding 
and we all give we give everybody the right to a, a public education, which we provide for generously with their tax dollars. And um, that public education, um, it's it's different for everybody in every state. That's for sure. I mean, somebody in New Jersey probably gets a little more public funding um, than somebody in Alabama and Mississippi. So maybe that's something that if you really believe that America should federalize. Maybe that's a, a place where we should do that, but a lot of that just reflects cost of living. Um, but the point is every state makes its own decision and it doesn't really equivocate from that formula for how we provide for students in the public education sphere. So I do believe that we're not perfect in equal opportunity, but we're pretty close. I mean, and not, not we're pretty close, but, but we do have those two premises accounted for at the very least. Yeah. Well, I, I agree when you look at the, uh, at the ideal portrait of America, everybody has uh, equal access to things that you say, like the government funding and so on, and public education. But there's, uh, you know, the devil lives in the details. There are differences in education. Uh, if you're going to an urban school versus a, uh, a rural school, um, you know, well, they're both actually under attack here in Missouri where I live. But, uh, you know, if, mm -hmm. if public education is one of those, is one of those, uh, uh, juggernauts that that uh, politicians like to play with, and a lot of them would like to have students go to private schools and be funded by the government for going to private schools, whereas that just takes money away from the kids that you know can't afford private school, and so they're lumped into a public school with less uh, with less um, with less funding. So, <clears throat> while I agree that ideally there is equal opportunity. Um, it doesn't always work out that way. And, and so th okay, that's so right. How about this proposal then? How okay. about this proposal? Why don't you give everybody a lump sum of money to spend on whatever educational institution of their choice? Would that represent equal opportunity to you? No, the it same doesn't. same lump sum of money. Actually, that doesn't because if you're living in a rural area, you don't have a choice. Well, then you can move. You can always, you can always move to an urban area. No one's stopping you from moving to the big city. Well, if you're a farmer, you know, you can't move, you know, if you're, if you're living uh, okay, out of rural but area. Now you're, but now you're starting to restrict, now you're starting to assume that people don't have choice in the matter. People are farmers. People can leave being farmers any day. They can pick up their hoe and they can say, I'm going to go to the, uh, their hoe and their shovel. And they, they can say, I'm going to go to New York City. In fact, a lot of people do that all the time in this country. Sure, sure. They're, but that's so, not really an option, though, for a lot of people, right? If you're making, say, $40,000 a year. Pardon? How is it not an option for a farmer to leave their farm and go move to to a big city? Well, it's the same thing. It prevents Can me from. They not from... do that. Are they legally not allowed to do that? Well, there's there's legal, right, and then there's practical. And uh, okay. what what sort of skills would somebody who's been raised in an agricultural background? Um, yeah, they can drive a harvester combine. They can do you know amazing things out on the farm. Uh, that doesn't work so well in New York City because that type of work is not needed. So, you know, but what that, do they do then? But in the end, Dan, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that people, by, just by their nature, will specialize in something by their own free choice. People will choose to be farmers. People will choose to be artists. People will choose to be businessmen. And those people who specialize in those fields should be rewarded according to their merit and their competence in those fields. Mm -hmm. That isn't an equal opportunity problem. Because at that point, you're starting to say that these people don't have choice when, in fact, they do. They chose everything they did or their parents chose everything that they did.
but that the kid can always leave the parents. So it's, it's, it's not a, this is not a matter of, I think that if, if you truly believe in equal opportunity and you say, and you said, um, people should have the ability to make whatever choices that they want to make in society. Um, and people should have resources to take care of their basic needs. Uh, I think just giving people a lump sum of money and saying, you can choose to spend that on homeschooling. You can choose to spend that on public education. You can choose to spend that on private education or charter schools or whatever you want to do. That seems to me to represent the epitome of equal opportunity. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I think we'd have to kind of leave it at that. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I, I do see where you're coming from. I think it just probably okay. wouldn't play that well in West Virginia for West Virginia coal miners who are, you know, having an issue right now, having to see that their the coal industry is winding down and they need to be retrained to go and do other things and move other places. But you know, they've been living for generations yeah, and, in the and same and place. And, that's... Have an, and artists in Los Angeles have an issue with their finances because nobody's taking their art. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, <laughs> so what should we do? Should we get people to automatically take their art? <laughs> or maybe should the artist consider a different career path? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Okay, good. Well, uh, let's switch topics here. I'd like to talk a little bit about critical race theory. And I, I've read your, your tweets on this subject. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, I've challenged you <laughs> on Twitter. Yeah, of course. Uh, regarding critical race theory. But I, I do I do like what you have to say. I just don't agree with it all the time. But but let's clear sure. the air on what CRT is first, critical race theory, uh, in, uh, both in its original form and in its contemporary form. Can you give us a rundown on what your take is on critical race theory? Well, I have a lot of, it's funny, I have a lot of followers who agree with me on Harvard's discrimination who, who disagree with me on critical race theory. Mm -hmm. um, but first of all, I don't believe that there's any, and there's any daylight between the original formulation of critical race theory and the current formulation of critical race theory. Critical race theory is always asserted in the text of Derrick Bell that the law is structurally racist. That's what they, that's what critical race theory says. Mm -hmm. You know, it says even in our supposedly colorblind neutral law system, the laws are still racist. Um, and, um, and we need to, uh, you know, fight back by critiquing the laws through a racial perspective, mm -hmm. uh, meaning we need to see how the laws create racially inequitable outcomes. And we need, if we're going to create equity, notice the word is equity, not equality. We can get into that. Mm -hmm. uh, if we're going to create equity, then we need to fight back against these oppressive laws, even though these oppressed, even though that these oppressive laws don't textually say anything about black or white people. Is that true, though? I mean, let's take a look at some of the history of, say, the Jim Crow laws that came out uh, after Reconstruction basically failed. <clears throat> and up until that point, we had you know quite a few uh, uh, people of color who had just been freed and started getting, started to get involved in politics. And there was quite a few people, as a matter of fact, that were, I think, somewhere in the order of 120,000. I have it written down here somewhere, about 120,000 people. Uh, black people in Louisiana who were uh, voters. And uh, there was a 61% turnout in, in black participation in voting for president. And this is talking about you know, the late 1800s where things seemed to be going on track. And then suddenly the hammer comes down, right? And the Jim Crow laws come out, uh, ironically, under the, under the veil of voter fraud and corruption, which that should sound familiar in contemporary times. 
And the result <laughs> of that is, you know, you have the you have the poll taxes, you have literacy tests, and things like that that are instituted as laws, right back back in the late eighteen hundreds. So that by the year nineteen ten, uh, according to one of the statistics I read was there were only 700 registered black voters in all the state of Louisiana. And this is after actually having, in some cases in the South, a majority black caucus in, in state legislatures. They're almost all gone by the year 1910, right? And this mm-hmm. was done legally, legally in the sense that, you know, these laws were passed. These, these were laws that were enacted. They may not have been constitutional, but oh well, right? They're still laws nevertheless, so yeah, I would I would take issue with that. I would say that no, there there are ways of of curtailing uh, people's rights, uh, constitutional rights through the law. What would you say about that? Of course, um, and I mean I would agree with you on the aspect of those. Uh... Okay, I, I need to be careful about what I say here because I agree with you that Jim Crow laws. Um, were created to uh, to attack blacks um, mm-hmm. and to to force them out of the political sphere. Even there were there were all there were a lot of black representatives in Congress before Jim Crow, and then after that, you know, a lot of the white people in the country got angry, and so they passed laws specifically with the intent of you know attacking you know black people and getting them out of Congress. That mm-hmm. that that's pretty clear. What I'm take issue with is trying to extend that into contemporary laws and contemporary society where the intentions, um, maybe not the effects, but the intentions are relatively, are, are pretty much the opposite. Now we have, now we have the civil rights act, you know, that says you should not, you cannot, you know, we have the civil rights act and the voting rights act, mm-hmm. you know, which say, which banned poll taxes, you know, right. and the civil rights act provides ample protections for black people who feel that they're being discriminated against, even though people aren't, even though they aren't discriminated against uh, these days, you know, there are some, the, the regulations are, are to the point where now white landowners are actually starting to fear for their own um, company because they say one wrong thing to, you know, a black person. And if you, you catch them on a bad day, they could be attacked for it. They could be sued for that. Um, so we do need to actually have a rethinking of these principles. But one thing's for certain. We have a lot of laws in our society right now that is bent to protect against discrimination uh, and are not at all, should not at all be compared to the Jim Crow cell. Okay. Yeah, I, I would probably have to take issue with that as well. We had uh, prior guests on the show here, Damon Davis being one of them. And um, he he basically said um, in his uh, in a tweet actually that just came out this morning, his observation is that the Supreme Court has destroyed every law meant to guarantee equality to black people, and the white liberal response has always been the system works or work within the system, and he said ironically now that that Roe v. Wade is about to fall, these same people now want to torch the system. <laughs> So, um, wow, that that's a little bit that him saying the Supreme Court has torched every law to um, allow for equality of black people. I would like to see his evidence that that does not seem to comport inherently with um, history. (laughs) Okay, 
Yeah. Well, I his mean, last time I checked, the Civil Rights Law Act of 1964 is still around. It hasn't been repealed. Last time I checked, the 14th Amendment is still around. It hasn't been repealed. Mm-hmm. Uh, last time I checked, you know, we have more protections. Um, not, last time I checked, we have um, the what is it? The Equal the Equal Opportunity Act um, banning banks from considering race and using loans or even things that are considered race proxies. Now banks can't even loan on the basis of zip code Mm -hmm. or choose to loan or not loan on the basis of zip code. They're very limited now uh, because of regulations ostensibly created for the civil rights of blacks. Um, And last time I checked, those laws are still around. So I don't know. I don't really know what he's talking about. Okay. Well, he was on our podcast on <clears throat> December 5 of last year, just about a month ago. So sure. uh, if you get curious enough and want to listen to his uh, to his reasoning there, that would be a, a good thing to do. I don't want to get too far into it right now because um, we do have to move on here. But, uh, no worries. But the, the, um, the bail trap is one other thing I wanted to bring up, too, is, is possible evidence. And it's not necessarily a trap for people of color. It is a trap for people— of lesser means, right? And so you can okay. get you can get pulled over by the cops for speeding or something, can't afford the speeding ticket of three hundred or four hundred dollars. You don't pay it, uh, then it starts to get worse, right? Uh, they issue a bench warrant for you. You end up in jail. You have to see a judge. Uh, now that you're in jail, you don't get to work anymore. You can't earn any money. You know, this is a sort of thing that uh, a trap that a lot of people fall into. And again, I'm not singling out any people of color or anything, but it does tend to okay. gravitate toward toward people of lesser means. And um, I think these are some of the things perhaps that um, that um, Damon Davis was talking about. Okay, so this is my problem. I mean, this is my problem with critical race theory. Even the laws that are bad, like say you and I agree that this law is bad. Critical race theorists will try to racialize it. They'll say this is a racist law mm-hmm. because it has because the people and their logic is this law hurts poor people. Poor people are disproportionately likely to be black. Therefore, this law is a racist law. Mm-hmm. That's the logic. That's the syllogism, QED. And that's it's it's wrong. It's the wrong logic. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, laws that hurt poor people hurt poor people. But poor people, you can't, you shouldn't go back and slap on the racist label because poor, poor people happen to be more black, um, because the 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 law wasn't passed necessarily with racist intent, um, and it there doesn't necessarily represent institutional. For it to be a racist law, you would have to prove that even among the poor people that it affects. Um, it's uh, black people specifically are the ones being harmed and the white poor people are the ones being helped. Maybe that would make a better case um, under for, for it to be a racist law, but that's not the case that they ever make and they never provide much evidence for that. I'll give you another example, mm-hmm. redlining. Everybody, all the progressives on the left love to talk about how redlining is a racist government policy because black people were put into neighborhoods that were artificially devalued, preventing them from creating wealth. Did you know what percentage of people under redlining, uh, under the redlining proposal, what percentage of people were black? I don't know. What is it? You tell me. 
Hmm. That means 75% of the people redlined by the government were white. So Mm -hmm. they call redlining a racist policy, but it affected vast majority whites. So this is my problem with critical race theory. This is why I'm, I, I, I pretty much disrespect it. I have no respect for it because every time I look and you, and you actually look at what they're referring to, you realize there's, there's very little truth in it. Mm-hmm. So, well, regarding critical race theory then, I mean, Dr. Uh, Dr. Derek Bell, um, ironically from Harvard, right? Well, he was at Harvard for a while and put it that way. Um, I don't think that he would necessarily disagree with the tendency toward identity politics these days. In fact, I, I believe that he believed at the time that uh, that also hurts people of color as well. And uh, things like reverse discrimination uh, have a sort of a um, um, uh, equalizing or not an equalizing, a um, uh, false equality effect uh, between blacks and whites. So I'm not so sure that he would disagree with you on a lot of these points. Um, but then again, I have not studied the course. I'm not a law student. I'm an engineer. So what do I know? But uh, yeah. I have I have read quite a bit about it. So that's sort of um, that's sort of what I've come up with. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're smart enough to read his work and understand how angry it is at the white man. Mm-hmm. And um, and 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 also it's funny because if you were to take a critical lens at his own critical theory perspective you know what what is critical lens okay critical lens is you have to consider the background of the individual okay if you actually yeah. consider Derek Bell, bell's background you understand he was denied tenure from harvard um and uh he basically organized a protest to get him back in so to him the system was so this the system at harvard at harvard university mm-hmm. was racist um because it was clearly because he was black and it was not because you know of his publishing credentials or his wit or his you know lack of teaching ability or anything like that so that's the way he saw things that's just the way he saw things but it doesn't represent the reality of the way things actually work in America. Hmm. Okay. Well, you've certainly given us something to think about here. So I was going to ask this other question. We're sort of running out of time here, but it was a question of whether or not you find America systemically racist. And I think the answer to that would just be clearly no. Is that correct? No. Look, if you want to say that America is a racist country, the burden of proof is on you. Okay. And systemic racism the definition of systemic racism, um, well, my definition of systemic racism, which I would, if you disagree, you can say it, but my definition of systemic racism is institutional collusion against people of a certain race. Mm-hmm. So I have a high pretty, so, you know, this is why I say policies that merely produce outcomes that disproportionately affect people of a certain race are not necessarily racist. We've already gone over that. You have, you have to prove collusion, that there's collusion. This is why I can say the Ivy Leagues are systemically racist against Asians. Why? Because Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Stanford, MIT, um, all 
lower, give Asians negative points on the admissions scores. Um, and uh, in fact, there's evidence demonstrated in the 90s that they actually convened, you know, for the purpose of colluding in the admissions process. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can, I have a lot of evidence to say the Ivy Leagues is, are systemically racist against Asians. And if you don't have the same standard of evidence for the country of America against black people, then I would suggest not saying that America is a systemically racist country. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's an answer. I'm I'm not sure that I would agree with everything, but I I do respect that answer. I I but the one thing I that sort of sort of sticks in my mind though is you would say that uh, that your definition of of systemic racism is institutional collusion against people of a certain race, but you've experienced that in all these schools that you speak of. I mean, starting with Harvard and MIT and Yale and so on. So isn't that yeah. a part of the system of of systemic racism? Isn't that the is, system it, of what? is system it of America? Yeah, I mean, couldn't you scale that out and say, you know, you've obviously looked very closely at what's going on in the universities and and identifying their systemic racism. That, well, am I going to blame America because Ivy Leagues have become systemically racist? No, no, no. No, no you don't you don't blame, blame America. I'm not going to blame the guy down the street. Well, um, well, there's I a think, difference. You know, we have a. There's a difference between calling someone a racist and saying that we live in a, in a in laws that are systemically racist. So yeah, I, I, I honestly. Go so far as to say because the Ivy Leagues are racist, therefore the country is racist. No. No, I've, I've, I'm simply asking. Have you looked into other institutions as well? I mean, you've obviously done a lot of research oh, yeah. into, into uh, academic research, uh, academic institutions, but have you looked in other institutions as well? You know, right? Yeah, of course. Um, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, the SAT. Okay, mm-hmm. progressives. Some progressives argue that the SAT is racist. Mm-hmm. So I looked into it. I was like, okay, is the SAT racist? Uh, then I looked at its history. The SAT was created to prevent discrimination. It wasn't created to uh, create discrimination. It was created to prevent it because mm-hmm. under the SAT, the rich person, the poor person, the black person, the Asian person can compete under the same framework. It was created to make a nationally standardized ability to test for scholastic aptitude. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was not a racist instrument. And so I reject the idea that the SAT is a racist instrument. So I, yes, I mean, I've looked at other institutions. Yeah, you've looked at the Salvation Army too, I believe, correct? I looked at the Salvation Army. Salvation Army came up with the document that said, oh, we need to repent for racism. And I'm like, okay, well, let's look at the Salvation Army's history. You guys have a racist history? Uh, No, actually, you guys were basically the first organization to create a non-discrimination ordinance in 1898. Mm -hmm. And you long pledged to serve without discrimination. I don't think any of your members are racist at all. Um, Out of all of the, the many Salvation Army officers that I talked to. And then I was like, so what's the point of accusing your members of being racist if they're not racist? Mm -hmm. And the point was, of course, mind control. The point was power. The point was DEI officers wanting more control over the curriculum. Now the Salvation Army has to go, has hired these DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion officers. They've given them control over the curriculum that they produced. New curricula has to be so-called DEI compliant. And in the absence of finding actual racism within the Salvation Army, these people are, this is why I call them parasites, 
-hmm. They are parasitically infiltrating an organization and establishing their own ideology to gain power within an organization. That's why, this is why with the mess that we're in right now as a country regarding this is, is so difficult to extricate ourselves from. So when you say these people, you're talking about people that have a sense of, of um, systemic racism, perhaps, maybe not individually, no, but no, on I'm a, not, a system not, level? Or, no, and I, I pride myself on being very precise with my language. Mm -hmm. By these people, I mean DEI officers um, or their equivalent in whatever Fortune 500 company you work for. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast and you work for a Fortune 500 company, you know who I'm talking about. Um, they're the they're the human resources or whatever. They're the people who use a critical race ideology to advance within an organization and gain power for themselves. Those are the people that I'm talking to, mm -hmm. talking about. So those are the people who say something like, "Blank company is racist." American Express, um, uh, Delta, whatever. Blank company is racist. I have the answers via all of this training and consulting services I provide. So let me talk to your employees and uh, give me a powerful position and a raise and a promotion. And I will help you solve this racism problem within your organization, regardless if it exists or not. Oh, so they're more like opportunists in, in a sense then. Right. Opportunists. Yeah. Those are the people I'm talking about. Okay. Good. We're running up on the end of our time here. Uh, I'd just ask, like to ask you one last question here. Uh, we would like to feature your book on the cover of our webs uh, of our website if you agree to it. I hope. Yeah, of course. Okay. And the book is entitled right. "An Inconvenient Minority: The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy," written by our current guest right now, Kenny Zhu. I highly recommend people read the book to better understand the frustrations that Asian Americans feel about our nation and. Uh, most importantly to me, uh, what it means to be uh, to become a true meritocracy. Um, so, Kenny, uh, thank you again uh, for joining us on our podcast today, and I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks so much, Dan. You too. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any suggestions for stories and or people you think we should cover at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through our website contact page at democracyonthemove.org contact or send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org. You can also comment on our Twitter page at All on the Move. If you find today's podcast interesting and informative, please tell your friends and family about us. And if you would like to help sponsor the podcast at Democracy on the Move, please contact us through the website or email. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in to our next episode.